0: My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus passed through towns and villages, teaching as he went and making his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? He answered them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. After the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, then will you stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. He will say to you in reply, I do not know where you are from. And you will say, we ate and drank in your company. And you taught in our streets. Then he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And there will be wailing and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south, and we'll recline at table in the kingdom of God. For behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. Growing up the youngest of three sons, one of the things that many people often noticed about my brothers and I were how different each of us were. So my oldest brother, Chris, was this excellent wrestler, and his senior year of high school was considered one of the best in the state of New Jersey. My brother, Craig, was an excellent student and was probably one of the most well-rounded people in his class, doing well in both sports and music. For me, as the youngest, it took a a while to kind of find my niche. What was I good at? And part of the reason was I was so often trying to be like Chris or Craig rather than just trying to be myself. And I know how blessed I was to have a a great family where my parents were trying to be attentive to each of our different needs and to to support our, our gifts and talents, but even more to have some really great teachers along the way who really helped me to learn a lot about myself. And one of those was my English teacher in high school named Mr. Epps. Mr. Epps was like Robin Williams playing Mr. Keating in Dead Poets Society years before that movie ever came out. He made a a subject that I wasn't even interested in and struggled with, and something that I still struggle with as evidenced by all the grammatical mistakes in my homilies or my postings on, on social media, which he will correct from time to time. Well, he made that one of my favorites in high school. He was creative and entertaining. But truth be told, it took a while before I even knew if I liked him or not. Because he knew how to zero in on each and every student like a a heat-seeking missile. Knowing how my brother Craig was one of Mr. Epps' best students and trying to live up to that reputation and and trying to impress Mr. Epps, I put a lot of pressure on myself. And so we had this this test early on in, in the year on Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. I'll never forget this. These were tales that were written in the 14th century, and the English language itself was still evolving. I hated it. Reading these poems in modern English was rough enough for me, but I still have these nightmares where Mr. Epps was reading the introduction to us in Middle English. Anyway, he handed out the test to us, and it had two sides on it on the front was all multiple choice and the te- on the back was like short answer responses and in my nervousness and my anxiety as soon as the test landed on my desk I didn't even read the instructions that said for the multiple choice we were supposed to write the letter and the answer out. I guess Mr. Epps had enough students trying to make a D look like a B just enough to argue an answer if it was marked incorrectly. Well, I must have been afraid that whatever last-minute cramming I had done would have like, wiped out of my head and be forgotten, so I just raced through all those questions and just wrote all the, the letter answers on the front. Anyway, when I got the test back a few days later, out of the 20 questions, I got maybe five of those answers wrong on the front. Not great, but not a disaster. But at the bottom of the page, there was a note from Mr. Epps saying, Mr. Churn, what sort of punishment do you propose for not following the instructions? I was like, and then I turned the other side, and it looked like a red pen exploded on the entire page. It was a disaster. Almost every one of those answers was either wrong or I only received partial credit. And at the bottom of all of that was the total number of points for the exam. It was something in the 50s out of 100. And then there was the letter F. And then there was a short little follow-up note from Mr. Epps with dot, 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 saying, perhaps that's punishment enough. It was a a shock to my system. I didn't think I was going to be doing that badly. And I was mortified. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. And all I wanted to do was get out of that classroom as quickly as possible. But as the bell rang, he called out and said, Mr. Churn, stay back for a minute. And he took his glasses off, and all he said very confidently, I know you can do better than that, and you know that you can too. And that was a turning point for me, because it was then that I recognized that, yes, he cared for me, not because of my brother, but that he loved me for who I was, and he was pushing me to push myself, which I did, asking for extra help, smarting, studying better and and harder. And yeah, I could and did eventually do better than that test. But before that could happen, I had to stop comparing myself to my brother's past successes, and I had to do the best that I could. Knowing that we are loved for who we are and not letting ourselves get fixated on comparing ourselves to others is essential, not just in being able to succeed in school or in work or even for our mental well-beings, but also for our souls and for our spiritual lives. Because in all humility, we need to recognize and acknowledge that each and every one of us can do better than we are doing right now. And that's not being said to be a negative thing, but rather it's something that's being said out of love, calling us to truly be the beloved sons and daughters that God created us and calls us to be. And that's important to remind ourselves Because Jesus kind of leveled a smackdown in that gospel that we just heard. He doesn't beat around the bush. Following Jesus is hard work. As evidenced by his telling us, it's a narrow gate that many attempt to enter, but not many are strong enough. And then for good measure, Jesus points out that saying that just because we know who Jesus is, that we have some understanding or recollection of his story or that we're close in proximity to him, that's not enough. But we have to back it up a little bit. Remember what caused that smackdown in the first place. Some guy had shouted out to Jesus this question, Lord, will only a few be saved? Whoever that nameless individual is, if you think about it, what was his focus? Everyone else. This nameless individual, he's been around He's showed up, he's been listening to Jesus, he's seen and heard some things. Jesus healing people of diseases, Jesus casting out some demons, Jesus performing miracles, including raising people from the dead. So that question itself, the guy recognizes Jesus has this ability to save people, but he himself remains somewhat distant. He's an observer, not a follower. And while he recognizes that there's a need for people to be saved and that Jesus has that ability to do it, he's not fully invested or committed himself that he needs to do anything or that it's even open to him as he asks, Lord, will only a few people be saved? Jesus' answer, though, is brilliant because while he's answering this one individual, as we read it, it's also directed at us because each of those answers is directed not at this person, But as we read and hear the word, you, think about The whole passage, his responses to you and I, the listener, the reader, as we hear him saying, I tell you, he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. And you will say, and then he will say to you. As we put ourselves into that scripture and hear those responses, it's jarring. It's meant to be a shock to our systems that maybe we didn't even expect. But there's a reason for it. Jesus doesn't want us comparing ourselves to anyone else or hedging our bets that if Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life, that our knowing that he said it will be enough for us to get in. He wants us off the sidelines and not to simply be observers, to not simply listen to stories of who Jesus is and what he's able to do. He doesn't want observers. He wants followers. He wants us to pursue holiness. He wants us to want to become saints. And yeah, that's that's a high bar. And that's why he tells us that he wants us to strive to enter that narrow gate. So we're not to feel comfortable that we're here and we see a lot of empty seats and think, well, we're better than all those people who aren't here. We're here, hopefully, to worship God and to recognize our need for him. Because something in our hearts and our souls knows that we can each do better and we want to do better, better at resisting temptation, better at turning away from sin, better at dealing with the sins that we have committed by going to confession, receiving God's gift of forgiveness and absolution and that healing that we need and that we want. We know that every single one of us can do better at loving Jesus. Better at loving him and serving those around the world and in our families and in our workplaces, in our schools. Better at listening to him and receiving him in in his words from Scripture and in his body and blood that we receive as we approach this altar in the Eucharist. And we can hear all this because it's not being said out of condemnation, but out of love. And that's what St. Paul was saying so beautifully in that second reading to the Hebrews. Paul reminds them, and us, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And at the time, all discipline seems a cause not for joy, but for pain. Yet later, it brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. We live in a a day and an age where there is very little humility in the world. It seems that the very general approach that many people, especially those in the public eye, have adopted is to tell themselves and everyone else that they're never wrong or never admit it, never accept any responsibility. Make people prove that you're wrong and even then just keep denying it and then turn it around to point out the things that they've done that's wrong. And by comparing ourselves to others in the most negative light, we almost try to bolster ourselves. Or we call it other people's faults not out of love, but out of this game of gotcha. I can't even imagine how Mr. Epps would fear in a classroom today, how corrections on my paper might be received. Would he be accused of bullying or psychological abuse for using red in such an aggressive way? And we can see how that has had ripple effects on so many people that so many of us are numb into any action, buying into that idea that hey, I'm not as bad as blank, and we have the name that we put in that blank. And we might think that that makes us good enough. Jesus looks at each and every one of us who desires not to simply be an observer, but dares to say we want to be a follower, and says, I know you can do better than that, and you know you can too, hoping that we receive that charge with the sincerity and the love that's contained in it to motivate us, to strive through that narrow gate, to desire holiness in this life, and to become one of his beloved saints in the life to come.